welcome to the 47th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and our co-host is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello, everyone. So, for a long time, Blue Frontier has advocated for a blue beat, the idea that journalism needs to recognize that the only resource not fully exploited in the ocean is good storytelling. Ian Urbina is a leading practitioner of the Blue Beat. The Outlaw Ocean, his award-winning series in the New York Times, led to a best-selling book of the same name, and now his organization, The Outlaw Ocean Project, that looks to generate more investigative ocean stories. His latest story, The Invisible Wall, is running in The New Yorker magazine. It's about how climate refugees trying to cross the Mediterranean to get to Europe are being held in their thousands by armed militias in Libya. In reporting the story, he was also kidnapped, beaten, and jailed by some of these same militias. So, Ian, for first, thanks for joining us again. And before we get into your latest story, why don't we go back to whatever challenges you faced getting the New York Times uh, excited about reporting on the ocean? The challenges were several. I mean, it's a, it's a sprawling space. It's hard to get to. It takes a long time to report there. Um, I think also my editors were skeptical that there would be something new to say about um, the ocean. And, you know, my main editor was insistent that if I do tackle that realm, that I start by looking at it focused on the people more than the fish and the marine life, and then maybe back into the environmental stories. But that was easy enough, and um, off we went. You have been working quite a bit um, around the high seas. Can you tell us what the high seas are? where the zones are, and then who manages this area of the ocean? So the high seas or international waters typically are defined as starting, you know, 13 miles offshore. Um, so the 12 mile mark offshore is the line. You enter the international waters or high seas and sort of a different jurisdictional regime, a murky one takes over and um, no longer do the laws of that nation apply per se. Um, what rules or laws or treaties do apply varies depending on the specific type of activity, whether you're laying, you know, internet cable or trawling or um, oil and gas drilling or um, launching rockets into space. Like all of these things fall under different authorities. And um, that murkiness, um, that divided jurisdiction is part of what leaves this place uh, woefully undergoverned. So, and if people think of ocean problems, they tend to think of oil spills or overfishing or plastic pollution, but kind of what you've been going at is the real outdoor, outdoor outlawed nature of uh, ocean activity to a large degree, what appears to be legitimate, like shipping or fishing um, is also a great opportunity for organized crime, for pirate fishing, slavery and the like. And, and what were some of the first stories that you looked at in that realm? Yeah, I mean, as you say, one of the goals was to sort of broaden the public awareness of the diversity of activity out there, uh, much of it nefarious. I'm an investigative journalist, so I focus on the dark underside of things, typically uh, things that need to be fixed that are broken. Um, the initial round of stories looked at um, slavery on fishing vessels, sea slavery, so captive, debt-bonded, indentured, shackled, sometimes workers on fishing boats. We looked at... Um, the problem of intentional dumping of oil, you know, on the order of every three years more oil intentionally dumped by ships than the Exxon Valdez and BP spill combined. We looked at illegal whaling and illegal fishing. We looked at repo men of the sea. So this small subset of mostly men who are hired by 
banks and mortgage lenders and other shady characters, insurers and, and the like to go and steal ships from one place and relocate them to another. Um, arms trafficking, um, murder with impunity, a wide range of um, dark behavior. And this is a very dangerous journalism job. Um, going into these countries and going on vessels, how do you get? How do you access all of the information you need to put together these amazing stories? Well, I have a good team, you know, and, and a big team that surrounds me. So I'm not a sole practitioner. You know, I kind of come with a lot of help. Um, I also have the luxury of time. You know, where beat reporters have to turn things around, and David can attest to this. You know, uh, you know, a story a day, a story every two days. Um, I have the, the ability to pick targets and then take, you know, weeks to months to produce the story. So that can allow me for some planning, which you need, you know, if you're going to talk your way onto these vessels. Um, and, you know, um, uh, we also plan long in advance before we launch on the ships and, and get a lot of help from NGOs that are out there, be they Sea Shepherd or Greenpeace or TMT tracking or, you know, um, Global Fishing Watch, you know, a bunch of organizations that are out there that can help us figure out where to go, who they know, how to get out to sea, and who can help us talk our way on, to, on board the ships. And, and that's sort of when you talk about a reporter getting in the field, this field is 70% of the planet that's all salt water and often two miles deep. So just as an example, to actually get on board some of these pirate fishing vessels that uh, stay at sea, and that's how they keep their crews enslaved. How'd you get out? How'd you get on board? Well, I mean, the answer varies from one story to the next. I mean, the sea slavery story that we did on the South China Sea, for example, where we really looked at um, pretty severe cases of captive workers, largely in the Thai fishing vessel. Most of those workers are Loatian and Burmese and Cambodian. In that case, you know, um, we I went with a photographer, Adam Dean. Um, we went to a port uh, city in, in Thailand called Songkla. Um, spent quite a while there trying to talk to various fishing captains, trying to convince them to take us the whole way out, which meant, you know, a couple hundred miles from shore to try to get on these vessels that you allude to, transshipment vessels that stay out at sea, have the worst cases. Became clear we weren't going to convince any captain to take us that distance, but we could get them to take us 50 miles out and then sort of talk our way onto a next ship. And then that ship would take us another 50 miles out and sort of hopscotch our way out there. Um, it's not a fast way to do it, and there's a lot of risk. You don't know how you're getting back and that sort of thing. But um, but that's how we did that ship, um, that sort of reporting. Other stories we did in the last 12 months, we did a story with NBC News about the largest illegal fishing fleet ever discovered, Chinese squid vessels in North Korean waters. That was a very different logistical game that we performed. Um, in that case, we bought our way onto a Korean, South Korean fishing vessel, and, and basically covered the losses of that fishing vessel for several days and convinced them not to fish, but instead to take us where we need to go. And then they could um, help us get close enough to the Chinese vessels that we were reporting on. And what did you discover? Well, there we discovered what we had seen as dots on a map, which was there was clear indication that there were on the order of 900 to 1,000 fishing vessels, all Chinese squid vessels in North Korean waters. It's a big deal because... There's an embargo, UN sanctions on North Korean waters that were unanimously signed by the UN Security Council. So that means China included. And yet there were all these foreign fishing vessels um, going into North Korean waters fishing. Um, we had seen 
with help, huge help from Global Fishing Watch, they had seen and reported to us that they had evidence that this was happening based on satellite information. We wanted to lay eyes on it directly. So we went out there and sort of parked in the key throughway where we expected the Chinese with their transponders turned off to quietly be heading through South Korean waters into North Korean waters. And lo and behold, there they came, you know, a huge convoy of them. And we tucked in behind them, began following them, put a drone up over them, chased them for a while, filmed them until one of them, one of the Chinese vessels peeled off and came at us and made it very clear that it was going to get pretty violent if we continued. So we, um, you know, uh, peeled off ourselves and headed back to shore because we'd gotten the evidence we needed. And once you get into a field, especially a field that covers two thirds of the planet, uh, one story tends to lead to another. How'd you get on to the story that uh, took you to Libya? You know, you write a book called The Outlaw Ocean, which is focused on lawlessness at sea, and you don't cover the migrant crisis on the Mediterranean, which is all on water. It's a pretty big blind spot, but I couldn't figure out when I was doing the book a new way in. And so I just said, unless I can do it better or different, I don't want to touch it. So I left it be. But then I had a musician actually in my music project um, tell me that he was working for the International Red Cross on a quarantine ship off the coast of Italy. And he he amazingly had found a piano on the base of the ship and he convinced the captain to bring it up on deck and play for the migrants every day. And I thought, that's a beautiful story in many ways, but tell me about these quarantine ships. And so he told me the Italian government has been keeping 10,000 migrants on seven rented cruise vessels offshore. No journalist has gotten on board. Only ones allowed are the Red Cross. And um, so I happened to know the head of the Red Cross. I reached out to him and said, look, could you put me in uniform and get me on one of those vessels? He said, yes. I took a photographer. We met with this pianist. We reported out the story. It was an incredible story, sort of a watery purgatory that no one had accessed before. And in and of itself, it was an epic tale ran with the Atlantic. But it also led to the next story, which is the, the migrants themselves all were talking about the brutality that many of them, most of them had experienced in their launching point uh, in Tripoli, mostly um, off the coast of Libya and, and just what they'd gone through in Libya to even make it to the coast of Italy. And it just struck me that, okay, well, our next story needs to be to get to Libya. And it feels like a very outlaw ocean story because the very main proxy force that's enforcing this invisible wall that's in the Mediterranean is this so-called Libyan Coast Guard, but it doesn't function like a normal Coast Guard. It's paid by the EU to stop migrants. And that story was very dramatic. I really enjoyed reading it. And um, it really brings up the complexity of what do you do with the immigrants? And I, I know that's not your topic, but um, given your research, what do you recommend? Well, I, I think um, first to take one step back before two steps forward with a question, I think one step back is to say, well, let's think about what are these migrants largely. Many of them are climate migrants, if not most. Some are fleeing poverty and some are fleeing terrorism and war, but many of them are fleeing also climate, the climate crisis. And then if you think, well, okay, so this problem is only going to get worse. 150 million people are supposed to be displaced in the next 50 years by the climate crisis. So that's, I think, sort of sets a backdrop of urgency that this problem is not going away. It's just going to get more intense. I think to answer your question, um, Vicky, like the, the uh, I think there are, there are two answers, one practical and short term and the other more difficult, but probably more important. The short term is you don't outsource migration control to failed states. So the U.S. outsourcing migration control to Mexico and 
paying the Mexican government to house Central American migrants and prevent them from reaching the U.S. border, bad idea, both from a humanity and legal point of view and sustainability point of view. And the European Union and Italy in particular outsourcing migration control to its southern border, namely across Mediterranean to Libya, terrible idea. Libya is a failed state and, you know, militia run. And so the the short answer is you really can't outsource one of your toughest problems if you're a Western wealthy nation to countries that are ill-equipped to deal with it. The second more immediate answer is you really need to look at the push factors. You know, if you're going to if you're Italy and you're the EU and you're setting aside a half a billion dollars over five years to arm, you know, guards in the Saharan desert and SUVs and drones over the Mediterranean, um, all for the sake of essentially thickening a wall, um, that's not helping your stampede. You know, um, you really got to figure out what's causing the people to stampede and probably to redirect some of those resources towards the push factors. And that means funds towards, in my case, my main characters from Guinea-Bissau, really thinking about how do you try to make where these people are leaving from a little bit more livable um, and help them manage the crisis that we're all going to have to deal with one way or another. And I guess your main character is, is killed in one of these militia jails in Libya. And as you were talking with the migrants, you set off a uh, series of events that got you arrested, really more like kidnapped and held with your crew for um, beaten up, held with your crew for a time. Um, was that something you were, it's certainly a risk, but I assume something you weren't expecting. Yeah, that's an understatement. I mean, I, I, you, you, not many Western journalists go to Libya. It's not a place that's easy to report. Um, I'm not new to this. I've been, you know, reported in the West Bank and Somalia and a bunch of places, but Libya is unlike any other, you know, it's, it's an unusually dangerous place, especially for journalists and Westerners. Kidnapping is a serious threat. We, you know, had armed security and had taken all the main precautions and we're in the country with a legal visa, et cetera. But, you know, still you run a real risk. I, I thought that, um, uh, we were probably going to be fine and, and be able to finish the job. And in fact, we were due to leave one day later, you know, in our reporting uh, before we were taken by militia. And taken by militia and, and keep going with that story. So this was our seventh day, uh, eighth day of reporting. Um, and uh, it was a Sunday night around 8 p.m. Um, I had a team of four people, myself included. The three others were, you know, with armed security heading out to dinner for the evening uh, in an armed convoy in Tripoli. Um, I was staying at the hotel because I had work to do. I was on the phone with my wife, knock on the door, um, figured it was one of my teammates coming back early, open the door, about a dozen armed men barge in, uh, gun to head, tell me to get on the floor, um, hood me, uh, then proceed to beat me, uh, break a couple ribs and do other forms of damage. Um, Seems to last a long while, the beating. They ransacked the room, dragged me out barefoot, hooded through the hotel lobby into a car, take me to a secret prison. But you said they took you to a secret prison. We later were able to figure out where that is. And it's, you know, sort of was quite an accomplishment. Um, and I was very happy of uh, being able to figure that out and put that out in the story. Um, but uh, yeah, this is a secret uh, prison that's um, uh, run by a specific militia and um, uh, you know, that militia is part of what's called the Libyan Intelligence Service, which is sort of the secret police uh, in the government. Um, my teammates were on their way to dinner. They were similarly hit by the same militia uh, in the middle of an intersection. Their armed driver was pulled out of the driver's seat. He was pistol whipped in the intersection. They were blindfolded, cars taken. They also had headed to the same prison. 
we all end up in the same um, facility and um, put in isolation cells. And um, over the next seven, uh, six days, um, you know, kind of engage in routine uh, or pretty intense interrogation during the days. And and um, luckily, because I had been on the phone with my wife when I was first taken um, and she heard some of the violence, uh, she immediately activated a, a security plan and the State Department got involved and ultimately um, enough pressure was applied that we were um, uh, rescued and evacuated from the country. Jeez, that sounds like a hellish experience the one thing I, I would say you know i do have a certain hesitation in never talking about the captivity because as bad as it was for us i think that the really important thing to bear in mind is that the migrants that we're covering are facing you know a thousand times worse they don't have the benefit of the u.s passport the u.s government um, um and most of them are um being held for months if not years um and some of them die they face torture you know so um it was a horrific um, experience, but in the context of what we are covering, I think the point that has to be made is the real story is what's happening to them. I want to congratulate you on your recent success where I think it started in 2015. There was a, a murder um, by a fishing boat captain, and it looks like that that is getting resolved. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, in some ways that was um, a, a story that... Um, was quintessential in the outlook of what we aim to report on. This was an egregious crime. It was a well-documented crime. This was a situation where um, there was a murder of at least four men. It was all captured and filmed on a cell phone camera. At the end of the murder, uh, some of the participants or at least the witnesses on board this ship that were filming the shooting of the men in the water um, pose for selfies on camera and celebrate. Um, and the footage ends up on the internet. We get handed it, we at the Yellow Ocean Project, or at that time at the New York Times, got handed it by a law enforcement source and began looking into it. If ever there was a law enforcement slam dunk, this would seem like it. You've got the evidence, you've got witnesses, um, you've got a, a sort of black and white clear crime. The guys in the water, whatever they did before, whether they're pirates or not, were clearly unarmed at the time that they were being shot by whomever off camera with a semi-automatic was, you know, over 10 minutes shooting headshots at them and kills all four. And so we began investigating and ultimately ran into sort of the bureaucratic brick wall that you do with um, the maritime merry-go-round, which is, you know, no one would own up to even investigating, prosecuting, or trying to um, shed light on this incident, um, except just a steady you know, um, spotlight of media attention um, seven years later ultimately culminated in a prosecution of the captain. Um, and uh, he was, you know, about three months ago sentenced to uh, 26 years in prison. We're so happy that you have the Outlaw Ocean Project. It's, it's a unique opportunity to really understand what is going on. And a multimedia uh, effort. You're trying to get beyond just long-form print reporting and providing other forms of, of reporting or communicating, uh, be it music, broadcast. Do you want to talk a little about that? Yeah, I mean, one of the aspirations in Bumpy Road sometimes, though it may be, you know, has been to, to try to do things differently. So in creating the nonprofit, um, one thing we want to do is rather than locking down the written stories with one outlet, um, if you really want to have social impact, maybe we should self-fund the stories and then offer them for free to the outlets 
but say that they can't have them exclusively. And if you do that and you translate into other languages, you can get, you know, what might get a million readers into 20 million readers because now you're running it in the major daily papers in 15 different countries and eight different languages. And so that to me is like one big thing we do differently. And then also trying to transform the journalism by collaborating with artists of different sorts. We initially started with musicians and that's been a really amazing success. We had some disgruntled musicians and tried to figure, learn lessons. I tried to learn lessons of ways that we could have done things better, maybe not scaled up so quickly, communicated better. But for the most part, you know, we have 505, 504 musicians, electronic, um, hip hop, classical, that team up with us, take the stories, um, score them in some ways to the to this to the feeling of the story. We pair the the imagery that we capture in reporting the stories. Oftentimes, musicians use sounds from the videos we um, um, produce, and then we put them out on music platforms. And the goal there primarily is to try to reach a different demographic, younger audience, uh, more global audience, in a more visceral way on platforms that aren't historically news platforms like Spotify. And that goal has been incredibly successful. We've gotten a lot of traffic that you know click over from the albums to the stories and we see the IP address and we see them consume the stories. Oh, so I've, got a, I've got a question. Did that pianist playing for the refugees on those quarantine ships, did he play excerpts from The Little Mermaid? <laughs> I didn't see that being the direction you were going to go. And the answer is no, that's not his jam. But he did play his Outlaw Ocean out. Al you know, he had published an album with us uh, um, before he went and worked that job. And um, uh, he played a lot of the music that he had produced for us on the ship for the migrants. So that was sort of a, a small little delight of mine. I really appreciate that project because I have a 22 and a 19 year old. And as you well know, to get them to read a lengthy article is a challenge. So using that type of creativity really can expand audiences. And I'm, I'm excited about that project. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I am too. And, and again, it's, it's a learning curve as you attempt to operate in other people's cultures and professions. Um, but, you know, we've had great success too with... Um, you know, uh, podcasts, uh, for example, but also with um, animators. And in this story with the Libya piece, for example, we had two incredibly talented animators who we provided the story before it was published, gave them a month and a half to start working on their rendering of the story and then paired their animations with some of the music from, from the music project and put those out. And interestingly, sort of almost as a gateway, as a, an on-ramp, it's a gentler way for people to sort of begin to look into these issues. And then some of them um, read the story and others don't, but they get the message. And this is a story that's really still breaking, but have you got any indication of uh, uh, policy impacts in terms of the EU subcontracting its immigrant problem to thugs in Libya? We're two weeks in from publication date, so that would be lightning speed for any policy shift. But no, I mean, we've seen in the last two weeks um, a lot of talk, you know, politicians um, of various sorts, lawmakers. Um, there's been some interesting litigation um, suing Frontex, which is the EU border agency, for example. That had begun before we started, but the piece we put out clearly put some wind in their sails. Um, and we've heard from key figures quietly in U.S. State Department and the EU um, uh, that the piece has stirred up quite a, a profound debate, which is kind of what we want. 
So 45 years ago, I wrote a story on uh, ocean mining in 1977. Uh, this is one of the new emerging issues. Is is this one of the issues you're looking at? Or what What are your next stories, uh, story realms? Um, seabed mining is certainly a great interest of mine. I, I, I do try to have most, if not all the stories, have a at-sea reporting element. It's one of the few things I think that we can really do differently. And and seabed mining is a challenge because it's on the front edge yet, and there's not a whole lot yet to see. It's sort of a coming problem. I think as a narrative story, as a as a, a global issue, it's it's got the boxes checked. It's a really important story. Um, uh, but um, how I make it visual is not as easy um, for me to figure out. I was talking with Sylvia Earle and her daughter, who's a, as you know a submarine engineer, and we were thinking, you know, are there interesting reporting tactics we could use by looking at before and after kind of situations on the on the seafloor to show just the devastation of what seabed mining would do. But finding the locations and getting down to the depth and figuring out how to film that sort of stuff is all expensive, complicated issues. But yeah, I've already written a little bit on the kind of back issues of, um, you know, real concerns and some of the, the small nations like Nauru that are really kind of trying to jump the gun and, and get going on this because there's money ostensibly to be had. Uh, and these are poor countries that need money. Um, so we start looking into it, but I'm waiting for the to crack the code on how to make it visual. And until we have some civil control over our outlaw seas, I'm glad that uh, we still have you and hopefully a growing cadre of reporters looking at the, uh, the challenges uh, in terms of uh, waste, fraud, abuse, and criminal activity on uh, the greater part of our planet that's salt water. So uh, with that, I'd really like to thank you for being uh, a part of the Rising Tide Ocean podcast this, uh, this week. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. I love your insight. Um, I hope that the Outlaw Ocean Project will continue to be successful, and uh, we look forward to talking with you again. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbar. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true. It's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier.